Please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. That's page 1112, 1112 in the Pew Bible. Once you've found your way to Romans 1, you will also want to find your way to Lord's Day 14. Uh, That can be found in the Forms and Prayers booklet in the pew in front of you. And uh, you want page 215, Lord's Day 14. We will read the first seven verses of uh, Romans chapter 1, and then we will confess uh, Lord's Day 14 responsively. Hear the word of God and receive it with a believing heart. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through him and for his name's sake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus far, God's word. Now, uh, please uh, give attention to question and answers uh, 35 and 36. What does it mean that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary? That the eternal Son of God, who is and remains true and eternal God, took to himself through the working of the Holy Spirit from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary a true human nature so that he might also become David's true descendant like his brothers in all things except for sin. How does the holy conception and birth of Christ benefit you? He is our mediator, And in God's sight, he covers with his innocence and perfect holiness my sin in which I was conceived. Dear brothers and sisters, friends, what is the gospel. Have you ever been asked that question? Or maybe you've uh, been asked to write an answer to that question. How did you find that exercise? Answering the question, what is the gospel? Uh, Perhaps you have struggled with that question at times. I certainly have struggled with that question at times because if you are being forced to give 
a concise answer to that question, what are you going to say? Uh, how can you encapsulate the, the gospel? How can you define the gospel in uh, uh, one or two sentences? And yet, uh, this is something that is important for us. It's important as uh, a kind of grounding for our own lives. A reminder there to be uh, consulted uh, as the occasion arises. Uh, but this is also an important thing in terms of evangelistic conversation. Uh, because when you're interacting with someone and you're seeking to witness to them, there comes a point in the conversation uh, where you're going to be compelled to give some kind of an account for the gospel and what then will you say? What is the gospel? Now, if you were to go out and, and to do a survey, and, and you were to survey everyone that met in a church in the U.S. today, you ask this question, I wonder what the data would reveal. It seems, actually, that there's quite a bit of disagreement in the church itself about what is the gospel. But that shouldn't be. Oh yes, of course, the name Jesus would be mentioned in connection with the gospel, I would hope, in every church. Uh, but in, in what capacity? In, in, uh, uh, how would the name of Jesus enter into the conversation? And, and um, what precisely would people say about Jesus? You're familiar, of course, with um, those who uh, live and, and die under the flag, no creed but Christ, no book but the Bible. but doesn't the Bible actually say quite a bit about Christ? How would you know, for example, that the Christ in whom you believe, in whom your hope is found, is the same Christ as the person that you met on the subway on Monday morning? Is there anything that we can say in terms of establishing just what we believe about Christ. Well, that's the importance of having creeds. That's the importance of having confessions. Uh, because uh, the creeds and the confessions, they go beyond this idea of no creed but Christ, uh, establishing for us uh, certain propositions. I, I assert that they are uh, biblical propositions, but they establish uh, certain propositions about what we believe about Christ. And what we're going to be reminded of again this evening is that what we believe about Christ is the most important thing about who we are. Uh, what we believe about Christ has everything to do with, uh, number one, what we would expect from Christ and of Christ, but number two, it has everything to do with our future. And the question that each one of us ought to grapple with, and the question that we ought to take forth um, as a tool for witnessing to friends and family is, what Jesus Christ do you believe? Or what do you believe about Jesus Christ? Well, Lord's Day 14 takes us right to the center of this discussion, uh, giving us what I'm ca uh, calling gospel ground zero. Uh, that is, 
uh, if we are forced in a matter of three sentences or so to say what it is that we believe about Christ, what are the most important essential things that must be said about Christ in those statements? And uh, this is also uh, kind of the same logic that uh, Paul uh, follows as he writes uh, here in Romans chapter 1. Now, uh, the, the, the context of Romans is interesting, and it's interestingly different from basically every other uh, epistle of Paul in at least one way. Does anyone know what that is? Well, whereas uh, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Thessalonians, um, Philemon, Timothy, Titus, uh, I'm missing some, not sure, Colossians, Philippians, what they all have in common is that they were churches that were founded by Paul. I may be misspeaking in this moment, and you may correct me later if I'm wrong. Romans is different. In Romans, Paul is writing to a church that he uh, knows by reputation. Uh, he is writing uh, to a church that he is planning to visit, and he's planning to visit them for a very specific reason, namely to raise support for his missionary work. Um, and so uh, he go, he's very clear about that in Romans chapter 1. He gives them this, uh, this lovely uh, greeting. Um, he says in verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. But then later he's going to go on further and say, but you know, my stop with you is temporary because um, really the harvest that I'm looking for is a harvest of support, of gospel support for the missionary work to which God has called me. So Romans is the kind of letter that an apostle would send to a church to encourage them in supporting missions. And so it's very fitting that that Paul begins with the idea of the gospel, and he gives for us, perhaps, uh, the most condensed version of the gospel message that you can find anywhere in the Bible. And uh, he begins with this idea as he establishes gospel ground zero, uh, this idea that the old news, or, or rather that the good news is old news, or that old news is good news. Um, we use the word gospel. I think sometimes we fling that word around. Um, and uh, yet, what does the word gospel actually mean? Well, it means good news. Now, you could give uh, any, different, uh, any number of different kinds of good news to people. Uh, that, that might have some bearing. It might have some transforming power in their lives. Uh, it might have the power to bring them a certain kind of joy or excitement. Think perhaps of a woman telling her husband that she's expecting their first child. Examples could abound. But the gospel focuses on a very particular good news. It's not a vague generality. But it's something very specific. And by the way, the gospel isn't new in 30 A.D. or 35 A.D. The gospel, or I mean, or sorry, the, the, uh, what, the events of, of Jesus' life and death and resurrection 
are simply the latest installment of the good news. Uh, But what Paul does is he uh, draws the Romans uh, very uh, quickly, uh, draws their mind back in history and says, uh, well, this is a good news that's been being preached for a very, very long time. Look how he says this. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son. So one thing that we have to be reminded of this evening and that Paul reminds us of is that the gospel is one. The gospel is one throughout history. The gospel is one from Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 all the way to Revelation 22. And one of the implications of this, something that's very confusing, there's a lot of confusion about this in the church, is that men like Abraham, Noah, and David were saved by faith in Jesus Christ. No one in the history of the world has experienced eternal salvation apart from faith in Jesus Christ. Their faith was not in animal sacrifices. Their faith uh, wasn't in, in some concept of a higher power uh, of, of God apart from Christ. But the faith of Old Testament saints was clearly uh, seated in the seed of the woman. It was invested in the seed of the woman. It was invested in God's promise uh, to sovereignly deliver those who trust in him. It was uh, invested in uh, that promise that continued to be unfolded. Uh, perhaps you could think uh, more of the way that an acorn uh, grows to be a mighty oak tree. Uh, that's the way in which the gospel of Jesus Christ is developed in the word of God. It's growing, it's growing, it's taking on a greater clarity, it's taking on a greater specificity. And um, there are, are different pieces that are being drawn in as time is passing. But the gospel is one. All who are saved, all who have been saved, all who will be saved, will be saved by faith in Jesus Christ. And it's important then, um, as we reflect on our own lives and as we witness to other people, that we understand that the gospel of God is rooted in history. It is a message that has content. It is a message concerning a person, and if we add to that message or we take away from that message, we fundamentally change the message, we undermine the power of the message. And one way in which we can do this is through an inadequate understanding of the person of Jesus Christ. That's where Paul goes immediately, isn't it? The person of Jesus Christ. Who is this son whom the gospel regards? Whom the gospel is about? Well, Paul lays out two ideas here, uh, very closely in keeping with the, uh, the catechism before us. And the first of these ideas uh, about the old news, uh, which is the good news, is that Christ is the eternal son of God. 
That is, uh, that he has no beginning and that he has no ending. Uh, The gospel proclaims to us salvation through the Son of God. Now, one of the things that that is uh, difficult when you come to the Scriptures, um, when you encounter titles, is that you have to view the titles in context. And so it would be easier for me tonight to just preach Son of God because your immediate connotation is going to be to think of the eternity of Jesus. But the reality is that um, he uses the Son of God in two different ways in these two verse, or these three verses before us, and so I have to explain this to you, which is that in the Old Testament, uh, one of the titles given to the king was Son of God. Okay? Uh, if you want corroboration of this fact, you need to go to Psalm 2, for example. And, and uh, we're used to applying Psalm 2 to Jesus, which is entirely appropriate. But when we do that, we're tending to skip over the human author of that psalm, which was who? David. David writing as the king of Israel, and he says that he is the son of God. Challenges our orthodoxy maybe a little bit. But you see, that was a customary usage of the title Son of God. But the Son of God is uh, a name uh, or a title that takes on an incredibly uh, greater significance when we come to the New Testament. For while Jesus um, uh, takes that name upon himself, he he owns that name, um, in so doing, he elevates that name. Because he is son of God in a way that David was not son of God. And that is, he is the eternally begotten son of God. And I believe that that's what uh, Paul is referring to here in verse 3 when he uses the word son, his son, regarding his son. Um, He will later, uh, in Romans 8 verse 3 and in Romans 8 verse uh, 32, I believe it is, he will refer to the Son of God, and it's clear that he has the deity of Christ in view. Uh, Let's just turn there a moment. Uh, 8 verse 3, For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And then uh, verse 32 of the same chapter he who did not spare his own son. Okay, so he's not talking here about the kingship of Jesus or uh, specifically of Jesus' identity as David's greater son. He's talking about the eternal nature of Christ as the second person of the triune God. Now, the Apostle John helpfully gives us a brief history of Jesus Christ. Uh, You may want to turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, and we'll pick up a little uh, uh, breadcrumb trail here in John chapter 1. So John starts out in the celestial realms. Uh, John starts out in uh, eternity in John 1 verse 1. 
in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Now, that's a great and profound statement, but that should raise simply one question, which is, okay, but who is the Word? Good to know that the Word was with God. Good to know that the Word was God, but who on earth is the Word? Well, then dropping down to verses 14 and 15, we read this. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, listen to this, He who comes before me is preferred before me, for he was before me. Children, I have a question for you. Are you listening? Who was older? Jesus or John the baptizer? Who was born first? Jesus or John the baptizer? John, I hear it. John. John was about six months older than Jesus. And yet John here, he's talking about the word that uh, was with God and is God in the beginning. And he says uh, that he was Uh, He who comes uh, before me, or comes after me, rather, is preferred before me because he was before me. And then just in case we have continuing doubts, we drop down to verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him, Jesus, notice that, and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me a man comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. These three passages together identify Jesus of Nazareth as the enfleshed eternal Son of God. So if you have any uh, propagandizers coming to your doorstep challenging you about uh, the identity of Jesus versus the Son of God and making strange claims, well, like he's not really the eternal Son of God, you should be confident to point them to John chapter 1 in the Bible that they are carrying and walk them through this pattern of, of thinking. The Bible could not be more clear This is not an idea that was made up by a bunch of white men in the 1500s, okay? Can we just say that? Some reformers got together, they had some good beer, and they sat in a back room, and they said, you know, um, we need to develop. This wasn't an idea that was developed in the 3rd and 4th centuries um, with the development of uh, our creeds. This is the very teaching of the Word of God. Full stop. By the way, it's the very clear teaching of the Word of God. And we don't need to be embarrassed or ashamed of that. And so our catechism says that the eternal Son of God is and remains true and eternal God, which means that we can say several things here. The Son of God has no beginning. There never was when He wasn't. Secondly, the Son of God 
did not mutate at Jesus' conception. He did not morph into something else. But rather, what, what the Son of God did is He took the, uh, our flesh into the Godhead. Thirdly, the Son of God is forever united to our human nature. We're going to come back to that in a few minutes. That's very important, as we will see. So then, to place this in the, the, the greater context of the journey that we're taking through the Catechism, um, Lord's Day 14 is part of the continuing answer to question 22. What then must a Christian believe? And maybe you've, you've run into people and they talk about Jesus, but it becomes very, very clear to you that they do not believe the same thing about Jesus that you do. But you say, well, you know, I can't make a judgment concerning their faith or their lack of faith. Notice this. This is a clear line of demarcation between the Christian and the non-Christian. Christians believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the eternal Son of God. Those who believe otherwise whatever they may think or feel about Jesus, and they may say some very nice things about Jesus. They are either A, not Christians, or B, they are very, very poorly taught Christians and they need to be brought deeper into the gospel. They need to be educated concerning what the Bible says about the person of Jesus. Which brings us now to our third point, which is that Christ is the son of David as well. In verse 3 of Romans uh, chapter 1, Paul develops this gospel regarding God's son further, uh, saying two things, uh, establishing two more facts. Uh, the first of these is that the son of God has a human nature. Look at this, uh, verse 3, regarding the gospel regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David. So first of all, the son of God has a human nature. Second of all, the son of God is a descendant of David. Which is what we confessed when we read uh, answer 35. The eternal son of God took to himself through the working of the Holy Spirit from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary, a true human nature. Now, boys and girls, listen. I want to talk to you about something. You probably know by now that it takes a daddy and a mommy to have a baby. Part of, uh, each of you is a part of your daddy and a part of your mommy. But Jesus is not like you. Jesus is not like any baby that was ever born. Because God caused Jesus to grow inside Mary's belly without the help of a human daddy. You say, oh, I don't know about that. That seems pretty strange. Well, Mary thought that sounded strange too. 
So when the angel had told her that this was going to happen, uh, that she was going to have a baby, uh, a very special baby, uh, and that there was not going to be a human daddy involved, she said, well, how on earth is this going to happen? Please tell me more. I want to know more about how this is going to happen. And this is what the angel Gabriel said to her. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Jesus is very, very, very much like you. Having a complete human nature. But Jesus is very, very, very different from you. Because he is also fully God. And that's the best news ever. There's a slot on the local radio station called The Best News Ever. I'm regularly dismayed by the best news ever or disappointed. This, however, is the best news ever. Why? Well, the catechism fleshes that out for us quite nicely. So does Romans 1. We'll see that in a moment. Um, But the the catechism always wants to get really practical. Um, The question often asked is, how does this benefit you? Uh, Sounds very pragmatic, and we like that because we're Americans, and Americans are just really pragmatic people. So what's in it for me? How is this helpful for me? He is our mediator. And in God's sight, he covers with his innocence and perfect holiness my sin in which I was conceived. You see, uh, let us remind ourselves yet again that we are on the most uh, natural of human journeys, and that journey is a journey seeking comfort. We're on a journey seeking rest. And the Catechism continues to define for us the only place in which rest and comfort may be found. And the the only place in which rest and comfort may be found again and again is in Jesus. And tonight the answer is that it lies in Jesus because of his uh, unique person being uh, fully divine and fully human. Uh, Because his unique identity, his unique uh, characteristics as an individual mean that he does something that nobody else can do. Now, we often talk about how it is that he can stand between the two parties, between us and and God, and and that's true. But I want to develop this a little bit further using an illustration. Imagine that there is a vitally important conduit, say a water line, um, that that, uh, moves from a a great large uh, diameter water line to Uh, a much smaller uh, diameter water line, or if you like, multiple. And a vandal comes and absolutely destroys the connection between the large and the small. That's what sin did. Sin absolutely separated us from God. Sin has absolutely cut us off from all of the benefits and the blessings that we experience in fellowship and relationship with God. 
And the question is, how is that relationship to be restored? And, and the answer is that we need uh, some kind of uh, a patch, if you will. I, I, I hesitate to use that of Jesus. Um, but so, so, uh, someone who partakes of the nature of the one as well as the nature of the other. And in so doing, what Jesus does is he uh, not only restores what was lost in the fall, but he guarantees that what happened in the fall could never, ever, ever happen again. Because whereas uh, the only connection between God and his people was the covenant that he had with them, after all, he is holy, he is altogether other than, now in the person of Jesus Christ, uh, we have, uh, Jesus has brought together the altogether other than with you and me. Jesus fully God. Jesus fully man. Reestablishing our connection to God in a way that can never, ever, ever, ever be severed again. No matter how many times you fail, no matter how many times you mess it up, no matter if you're one of those difficult people that tends to destroy relationships, doesn't matter. Because if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you belong to the family of Jesus, Nothing can ever separate you from the love of God again. Isn't that wonderful? That's a message for failures. It's a message for the weak. It's the best news ever. Look again at the catechism. He says... He is our mediator. That's what we've just described in some sense. And in God's sight, he covers with innocence and perfect holiness my sin in which I was conceived. You see, he doesn't just bring this connection, uh, restore this connection in an unbreakable way, but he takes the greatest white blanket, the most pure white blanket that you can imagine, and he, uh, he settles it over top of you and I so that when God looks upon us tonight, as we are before the presence of Almighty God, He does not see um, red blood sinners, scarlet hand sinners. He sees people who are clothed in Jesus. And He delights in you. Dressed in Jesus. Do you understand why the doctrine that we've been explaining tonight is absolutely fundamental to the Christian faith? Do you understand? Do you begin to see now that no lesser conception of who Jesus is provides the kind of Savior that you and I need? And that these lesser conceptions of who Jesus are are actually an idolatry, that they are an abomination to God, and that they are... Uh, a, a, a uh, altogether other God than the God of the Bible. 
There's no salvation in that kind of a God. There is only salvation in one, and his name is Jesus, Son of God, Son of Man. May God comfort you. May God embolden you. May God motivate you. May God encourage you with this good news this week. Let's pray. Lord, what shall we say to these things? If you be for us, who can be against us? If you did not spare your only Son, but gave him up freely for us all, how will you not also with him freely give us all things? Lord, open our minds. Open our hearts to receive the immense truth that we've been considering tonight. We confess that, that Jesus, the, the, the person of Jesus, challenges everything that we think that we know about the world. But it is clearly the teaching of your word. We pray then that we would not be wiser than you, but that we would humbly submit to this message, that we would joyfully receive this message, the greatest news that the world has ever known. We pray too, Lord, that you would strengthen and restore our faith in this message, in your power to grip, to transform, uh, to regenerate even the most hopeless of sinners. So that we may be emboldened to go forth, to speak the word freely. Give us also a passion and desire for the honor of Christ, his divine honor. That we cannot tolerate, we cannot sit idly by while the majority of our neighbors do not worship him. Lord, consume us with zeal for Christ and glorify Christ in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives, and in our mouths. For we ask it all in his name. Amen.